It's episode 55 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show is my old friend, Tim Roberts. He was one of the very first product people at Fitbit and was with the company as it grew through its IPO and beyond. We're going to talk about the lessons learned through such a remarkable trajectory and what it takes to keep up when a company goes through such growth. Tim, thanks for being on the show. Good morning, Jeff. It's great to chat with you. Uh, you know, I said one of the very first product people, but you were the first product person that fit it. It's true. It's true. Unless you count the two founders as product people, but I was the uh, the very first dedicated product person in the organization. Yeah. I mean, we sort of always do when there's founders say, obviously, they are focused on the product, but... Um, uh, but when, it, but, but, uh, most of them realize at some point, oh, we need somebody who has some background in this and, and things like that. And they, and they look for somebody to fill that role. But it was interesting with Fitbit. I mean, we're getting right into it here. I should just say, Hey, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, fantastic. How long has it been since you left Fitbit? I left Fitbit, oh, about a year and a half ago or so. And, uh, and you're sort of just kind of thinking about what's next and, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I took a little bit of a break after leaving Fitbit. It was, you know, I was there for seven years. It was a pretty intense and amazing experience. So I did a little sabbatical or a hiatus, uh, post leaving. And then since then I've been, uh, doing a combination of some advisory work, some consulting work, mm. and then, you know, tinkering around with a couple different ideas and yeah. thinking about what I do next. Yeah. 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 You know, I, uh, a friend of mine, Jason Goldman, I don't know if you know, you must know him. Oh, you yeah. probably worked with yeah, him at, yeah. you, cause you, you were both at Odeo, right? Yeah. Well, I, we, well, we didn't quite overlap, but I mean, you know, the, the Odeo circle, the Odeo Twitter circle for the origin days is pretty small. Yeah. Um, I remember he, he sort of went with Twitter from like the very beginning as a product guy, uh, through, uh, IPO and everything did that the, similar to your, what you, you did at Fitbit. And he told me afterwards, he left the, uh, the company of, um, I think a year after that. And he said that the anxiety of being responsible for the future of media kind of shifted to the anxiety of getting all of his laundry done. And it was the same, <laughs> it was the same anxiety, just looking for a home. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It makes you realize that most of these concerns are internal, not externally caused. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He was like, my brain just needs a thing. And for a while it was Twitter <laughs> and now it's my damn laundry. <laughs> I thought yep, that was hilarious. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, so yeah, you were like, like I said, uh, you were there, uh, at Fitbit way early on. Um, and actually we could, we could go a step before that because, uh, we were both, you and I founders early on in True's history, True Ventures history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both, yep. uh, uh, we both took our first rounds of funding from them. Um, and, uh, and I remember sort of, uh, interacting with you back then and, and stuff. So mm-hmm. you, so you went from the sort of entrepreneur into, into, into the Fitbit. What was that sort of like? Uh, you know, so I had done a, uh, startup with True that I started in maybe 2007. Um, and, uh, and after wrapping that up, True was just amazing in terms of, you know, wanting to kind of keep me within the, the True network of mm-hmm. sorts. And, uh, and they said, you know, Hey, Tim, what do you think is, is interesting within the true portfolio? Can we in, in make any introductions here? And Fitbit, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, announced that it was the, the product was kind of almost launching the very first Fitbit. Uh, and I had got my hands on an early one through true. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, um, I, you know, I was a big user of, of 
the early Nike Plus products, and I was just fascinated with the space of uh, how how you can collect information on people's exercise and health, and how you can turn that into behavior change. And, yeah. and so, I mean, I just I, I fell in love with the idea of what Fitbit was trying to do from the very beginning. And so I said, hey, I think Fitbit is fascinating. Can you introduce me over there? And so I I met James and Eric, the two founders, uh, in uh, fall 2010. Uh, the uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there was eight, I, so when I joined, I was employee eight. So pretty wow. early on yeah, and, yeah. you know, James and Eric are just amazing entrepreneurs and they, they deserve enormous credit for, I mean, essentially launching a consumer electronics hardware, you know, connected device with less than eight people in the company, which is kind of mind boggling, <laughs> um, especially back then. I mean, there's a ton of infrastructure and a ton of like, and just like common, common knowledge around logistics and like getting things manufactured in China and stuff that starting today. Yeah. You could probably do something with eight people or even fewer perhaps, mm-hmm. but, but, but like in 2006 or 2007, like that was nuts, right? That was like inventing all sorts of things that we take for granted now. And, and just hardware in general was nuts. Like it was very unfashionable at that point in time. Yeah. I mean, you know, true deserves an enormous amount of credit for, you know, recognizing and identifying, you know, the opportunity with Fitbit very early on. But, you know, most people looked at, you know, hardware startups and said, why would you possibly invest in a hardware startup? So it was, it, it was definitely nowhere near as fashionable or um, common as it is now. Right. And, you know, it was also not just a hardware startup, but it, you know, it was the early days of really doing, you know, wearables and connected devices, sure. uh, which comes with its own set of complexities and challenges. So, you know, when, if, if you look at the adage of, you know, you know, it's, it's sometimes good to take the stairs to take the challenging hard path. Right. Uh, Fitbit definitely was taking the stairs and skipping the elevator from a startup perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to put that into context, we didn't even have iPhones yet. Uh, I, re- I remember you telling me like to use the Fitbit, you had to plug it into your Mac and there wasn't even sort of really like you, he, you, you weren't even using USB at the time or, or something like that, right? Like it was. Very- uh, so yeah, this was, so, I mean, we, uh, iPhones at the time had no, um, they had Bluetooth capability, but they didn't have Bluetooth low energy. And right. so for a small little device, like a Fitbit, you couldn't use Bluetooth. It was too power hungry. And so it meant that if you wanted to get data off of your Fitbit, uh, the way we were doing it was with a, uh, a dongle that you had to plug into your computer yeah, and right. that communicated using this thing called an ant protocol, which is very common in the world of like bike computers and right. how bike computers, you know, communicate information. So uh, that's, and so you had to plug in the dongle. You had to get the data from your um, Fitbit onto your computer, which then went up into the cloud. And, and so like the whole mobile device was kind of left out of the, the fun, yeah. which is, you know, ways made no sense just from a product experience perspective. Cause you're like, you're making this device that is all about activity and motion and being away from your computer yet to actually consume most of the product experience. You had to go sit down in front of your computer. And yeah. so from the very beginning, we were like, Oh, we so want to have a mobile experience that goes with us, but there's no way to get the data direct from the Fitbit to the mobile device. And I seem to remember, like, I had one of the first Fitbits as well that it clipped onto your pocket but had no external display of how many steps I had. Oh, no, it did have an external display. It had a dead front. Yeah, it it did. It had a dead front display. It was actually a magical little um, design that was done on that early one where it looked like it had no display. But then when you press the button, there was a a little display 
um, that was underneath the material that covered it. So it looked like there was oh. no display, but you press the button and then it kind of lit up underneath the surface of yep. the device. I remember um, that. So, that, you know, so it, you had your basic stats on there. It would tell you, you know, your steps taken and your, uh, you know, your calories burned and things like that. Mm. But, um, but again, like you couldn't get getting that onto the mobile device was so hard. Sure. And so then when, you know, the iPhone launched, uh, with Bluetooth energy, I think that was iPhone six somewhere around there. Took that uh, long. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we immediately. Um, you know, we, we kind of looked at Bluetooth low energy and we're like, wow, it's a nice protocol, but if the phones don't support it, it doesn't matter. And then as soon as that got announced, we scrapped everything we were working on and started focusing on Bluetooth low energy. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's go back though, uh, to when you were employee number eight and, Mm -hmm. um, and you're coming into a company that is very, uh, with founders that are very product focused. Uh, and so at the, at the beginning, uh, were they, were they, were they coming to that? conclusion that they needed help uh because they needed to focus more of their time on the company and less of the time on the product or just like what was that like coming in yeah i mean you know again fitbit is as a a product footprint pretty ambitious and so you know you're talking about you know the entire hardware component which includes all the electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and firmware and supply chain and manufacturing and i mean just Building that piece of hardware totally. is a complicated thing. And, yeah. and it's, it's worth noting the two f- co-founders had no background in hardware. <laughs> and so um, there was that that entire piece. And then there's, you know, all the software piece of, you know, you think about um, a Fitbit, um, the amount of data that it publishes up to the cloud is actually substantial. You're talking about minute-level data or second-level data getting captured and then published up into the cloud. And so when you have tons of devices out there, they're just constantly writing and publishing up to the cloud. So you've got all this data storage, and then you've got the entire product experience you need to build on top of it. And so you know, there's this really substantial product footprint. The types of techno- the, the stack of technology is very, very broad. You know, so you've got all the hardware technology that's required, but then you've got your standard service engineering and mm. web engineering and everything else that goes with it and you know obviously once you add in iPhone and Android and everything else it just gets bigger and bigger and so the the two co-founders when when I joined they were just neck deep in manufacturing and operations issues of uh, you know there was a huge early you know initial demand for them and just trying to get manufacturing and operation issues worked out was a huge headache and so you know they they had no bandwidth to think much beyond that and so they needed someone to come in. Um, and I'd say this was earlier than most companies. You know, mm-hmm. Usually you, you don't hire in an executive product person outside of the co-founders that early on. But I think there was just so much to get done. And to James and Eric's credit, I think that they recognized bringing in some uh, relatively senior experienced people early in the life cycle of the company uh, who could both roll up their sleeves, but then also could scale with the company. Uh, was a, you know, was a good idea. So, uh, you know, for that reason, they they brought me on and I was able to take on a large amount of responsibility at building out the product management, the design, the, you know, analytics and data science, Mm. the UX research, those functions within the company. Wow. That's amazing. So yeah, that's, um, that's very early to bring a, uh, kind of a seasoned product person in, but they, they sort of staffed the company very early on with people who remained all the way through like, like we're leaders and grew into leadership positions, which is also unusual for a startup, you know? Yep. Yep. Very true. I mean, one of the things that was amazing about Fitbit is the, you know, the CEO, the CTO, myself, the chief business officer and the COO. So a majority of the executive staff, 
um, were all joined the company um, with less. They were, they were all, you know, like employee 20 and under. So really early stage um, all came in. Yeah. Um, all, you know, the, the two co-founders were probably the youngest of the crowd. Um, and, uh, and, and those, those five execs, is that five? Yeah. The yeah. five, those five execs, we were all part of the core executive staff, uh, through taking the company public. Uh, yeah. That's and just, my guess is that that's, that's not have that many of the execs start that early and go all the way through IPO is not super common. No. Um, and so, you know, it was, you know, I think a, a reflection of hiring, um, you know, what is, what can be hard to find, which is pretty senior experienced people, but people who still loved rolling up their sleeves and, and starting really early and then were able to scale. Yeah. And is that what you had to do? I mean, were you like doing wireframes, but also hiring, oh, yeah. you know, like the, the, the rest of the team and just everything I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, totally. When I started, it was, you know, there was no other product people. There was a, des- uh, a design lead. There was a, uh, a R and D lead and there were some support people, and then there were some contract software engineering, and that was about it mm-hmm. um, in terms so of the software got, side of things. You got busy building a team. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was in the beginning, I was doing wireframes. I was doing, you know, creating product backlogs. I was writing user stories. I mean, <laughs> so it was all hands-on, which, you know, I mean, it's the whole reason I started my career is I love the craft of, of making of making products. And so that was exciting and interesting for me, and I was coming off of another startup where I was pretty hands-on as well. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was all exciting, but I mean, I, I had no idea what was, what was coming down the line and what that Fitbit was going to scale and grow and become what it became. You know, at the time it was kind of this geeky, you know, idea of, you know, putting a clip on yourself and collecting data and, you know, the speed with which that went from being this kind of geeky, somewhat fringe idea to being a mass market product at a global level, um, major headspin. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I mean, the, the, going from this whole era of like the quantified self as, uh, as, as like you said, kind of a geeky thing that like, why would you ever want to do that? It's just a pedometer to now it's like mm-hmm. literally like huge displays in Walmart. And that's just a few years, you know, mm-hmm. you also yep, told me totally. you, kind of, you, you kind of went from you and this designer and, and starting to build out to team to had, having literally 30 teams working independently or not independently, but mm-hmm. working concurrently mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. to try to manage and like that. Just tell me like what that journey was like. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, by the time I left, I think we had approximately, uh, 30 agile teams, uh, that were, uh, you know, either, you know, software teams or firmware slash embedded systems teams. So the teams making the software that ran on the devices. Um, and you know, these were not teams that could work totally independently. They had to be coordinated on a common product planning process. Um, cause there was a lot of technical interdependency and there was a lot of user experience interdependency. And so, um, you know, when you think about that from being a tiny team where you're the only product person to a team, you know, to having that many teams in parallel, I think one of the things that was just so special about the Fitbit experience was being able to be there and connect the dots and longitudinally go from being at that earliest stage to head to being at that latest stage and seeing all the things that broke and all the things that didn't work and all the, the you know, the, the drama along the way of trying to get from A to Z. Yeah. 
we just talked about going from zero to one. Uh, what, when did you decide that you had to like split your early product team into two or, or that they had mm-hmm. to be distributed or whatever you ended up doing there? At some point, it's not just you and the team. Yeah. Well, so let me start by answering that by saying, I think, you know, just at a philosophical level, I've always believed that I've always been fascinated with and have an enormous passion around startup company teams. Because I just think that when you look at the teams that are most productive, that create the most amazing things, that are most innovative, often those are these little startup teams. And, you know, if you look at, well, why is that the case and what are the properties of those teams? They tend to be uh, really empowered, really autonomous, uh, having a very strong uh, generalist on the team. And um, I really wanted to figure out, you know, how do you how do you take that unit of that that cross functional team? And as you scale the company, how do you replicate those units and try to recreate those units as much as possible um, to try to keep that magic of the, uh, the startup team magic? And so, you know. As we started to get bigger and, you know, we, we started building out a, a, a local team in San Francisco, I'd say we were probably up around 20 people. And that includes designers, product people, engineers. Yeah. When we started saying, all right, this is starting to get too big to really manage as one team. And when I say one team, I mean, we were talking about, you know, where, you know, we had one product backlog, one set of priorities, essentially. But what started happening, and I think the indicators that we were getting too big to really operate as one team, uh, was that one, uh, you know, we were doing, you know, we we're practicing agile and we were doing daily standups and stuff like that. And, and people started complaining like, wow, these startups, these, these standups are taking too long and I have to listen to all these projects that have nothing to do with me. And so there was just this natural desire to start parallelizing, right? And saying, okay, well, what, why it, would it be more efficient to have these, these teams operate um, in a parallel manner versus having everybody kind of be the, you know, the, the one massive team. Uh, so, you know, it was around that stage that we, we went and started to try to break up into a multi-team model, uh, which, you know, it, uh, I'd say went okay, but was, was bumpy and, and, you know, had some, some failed starts in trying to make that happen. Mm. Um, there are so many different dimensions that you can decide, like, you know, are, are we going to go based on features? Are we going to go based on parts like layers in the stack, uh, for, for how we develop or how we split up the teams and stuff like that? Where'd you start? Yeah. Or, or the other one too, is like, do you do it based on like metrics? You know, sometimes you'll see team, you know, companies have teams that are responsible for conversion numbers or acquisition numbers or things like that. You know, I'm a big personal fan of having um, teams own customer areas, Mm -hmm. like feature areas. And so that's what we tried to do. So we tried to split up into into a few teams that were you know cross functional that were as independent and autonomous and self sufficient as possible, owning different areas of the product experience. And um, you know, so we had three teams. I think it was three teams we tried to divide up into, and uh, we kind of presented it out to the entire um, product org. Uh, and when I say product org, I mean you know engineering, product design, and uh, engineering specifically iOS engineering completely rejected the plan. <laughs> and uh, it, it almost like a kind of mutiny level. We had a new director of iOS engineering who's who's great, uh, and he basically said, "Look, I've got. I just he just joined the company recently. He said, look, our our iOS code base is a piece of crap. Um, it 
And we have so much work to do to get this up to be a solid, modern iOS app that if you take my three iOS engineers and you put one iOS engineer on each team, I can guarantee you that this this um, iOS app is just going to become worse and worse. I need to actually have all these iOS engineers sitting together, working together and you know refactoring this app and building this into a much better app. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with that, that rationale. So we went back to the drawing board and said, all right, well, so if this, this, and I think that the, the, the core issue here was it was part of technology issue that the, the app itself needed a bunch of refactoring and work. But the other issue was just that I think we were trying to get to these feature-based teams prematurely. We just didn't have the, the staff necessary or the, the sufficient staff to, to build out real feature-based teams. So we, we, changed our approach and we ended up building out platform-based teams. So we had an iOS team, we had a, you know, a web front end team, and we had a basically a back end team. Right. And, and so it was a little bit of like a, you know, so it, it, on some levels it worked really well because it, it's, it solved some of the problems of making, you know, having these overwhelming um, standups, this feel of this team being too bloated and too big, um, but, you know, it didn't get you to, you know, if you, if you go to the feature team model, it means each one of those teams gets to have a very clear autonomous uh, backlog of what they're working on. But in this model, you still have to really have one set of common priorities yeah. of what are, and then there's a lot of coordination to get a feature done, right? You need to get a feature done. Well, if there's a uh, expression of it on the iPhone, and if there's an expression on the web, and if there's a back end to it, all three of those teams need to work together. And so, you know, there was an overhead that came with it. Now, when we were small and there's only a few teams, it wasn't that big a deal. You know, you can kind of, those interdependencies, you can kind of manage in the ether. It doesn't create too much of a tax. Right. The the tax probably gets absorbed most at the product management level Mm -hmm. because we would have a product manager be responsible. Because I didn't want to have product managers just responsible for iPhone, web, and back end. Like I need to have a product manager responsible for nutrition, for instance, right, and right. the nutrition features in the app. And so the uh, we would have a product manager responsible for a feature area, and then a product that same product manager would be responsible for the backlog for a platform team. So they we had someone responsible for nutrition and also responsible for iPhone, and. And the product management team had to really absorb the coordination, the interdependencies, the planning, the backlog coordination to make sure that all the teams were uh, kind of in sync on what they were working on. And again, in the beginning, that I mean, it was you know from a product management perspective, it's it was suboptimal, but not that big a deal. Um, and so that that model stayed with us and worked for a number of years um, and worked pretty effectively until it utterly and totally failed in burning flames. <laughs> Isn't that though, with any sort of communication or organization of a, of, of a growing team, it, it works until it doesn't is kind of the right. Like, um, and that's okay. Right. I, I, I feel like in the, in the times that I've been through this, I've been through some incredibly rapidly growing thought. Like I was at Google when it went from 4,000 to 20,000 in 18 months, you know? Yeah. That's just crazy. Absolute. Yeah. yeah, Like, and, and, and kind of accepting the fact that what, what is working at this moment may not work two months or two weeks from now. And that, and that's okay. We're going to go through this process. Uh, and, and as we grow, we'll find new tools and new process to help us. And that should be almost a continuous thing. 
right? Just like we want to have continuous improvement in the product, we kind of want to have continuously reinventing how we work with the team because the team today is not going to be the same team two months from now. Totally. And it means, you know, it actually affects who you hire because you want to make sure you're hiring people who actually not only can tolerate an environment like that, but enjoy and thrive in an environment like that. And there's just, you know, there's some people who that drives people nuts. They hate that. And I would, you know, when I would onboard people, I'd say, look, your job is part to do the work, but your job is also in part to, to really look at how we do the work and realize that that's going to be continually changing and to be an active participant in reevaluating how we do things and improving how we do things. Cause that's going to be a moving target. And you know, that is just as important as the work itself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And there's, you know, there's the, the one of the difficult things about startups as well is the other side of that coin, which is uh, that very, the people that you bring in relatively early who are amazing at what they're doing, like don't, don't feel like they fit in a 200 or, or a thousand person company that it grows into, even though they mm-hmm. have the tenure that, that has an expectation of leadership or, or at least, you know, some kind of seniority. Um, and that's always a difficult thing to struggle with as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think we did actually a pretty solid job of, of retaining a lot of the early people for a, a reasonably long time. I would say part of that is just that Fitbit was, you know, everything was going up into the right. Mm. And, you know, we had our challenges and our existential threats along the way, but the, you know, the product was just taking off and being so successful that I think that makes retention pretty easily or pretty easily, pretty easy Mm. to retain people when your product's being really successful. But, um, but, you know, but we definitely lost people along the way who just, you know, uh, you know, as, um, the organization got more complicated, as there was more stakeholders, as there started, it just got harder to get things done, things like that, 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 you know, we would naturally lose some people along the way and some of that's natural and that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but, you know, I also think that if you can, um, if you can keep your teams really productive, if you can keep people feeling like there's a great direct one-to-one relationship between their effort and that impact on the company and they can have a big impact that that goes a long way to retaining people. You know, maybe that's a, uh, that's an interesting transition to talk about uh, how you grew the team and kind of what, and what I mean by that is who you looked for. Um, you, uh, we were talking earlier and you mentioned this sort of framework around aptitude, ambition, craft, and expertise. Does that sound, mm-hmm. did I get that just about right? I don't know those are the words you used, but I really like that framework as a way of separating out like how somebody might fit and where. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it as aptitude, ambition, uh, domain expertise or craft and, um, or I'm sorry, craft or kind of the, um, the, the role responsibilities and then the domain expertise. So, you know, if you're talking about a product manager, for instance, you know, there's ambition and aptitude and, you know, in in my mind, those are, you know, essentially table stakes, right? You need to um, find someone who from an aptitude perspective just has high intellectual horsepower and is a good learner. Cause I mean, especially when you're doing startups and you're doing technology, there is no playbook. You're constantly figuring stuff out. And so having really bright people is important Uh, on the ambition piece that you really want to find people where there's as tight a fit between what their passion is and what the work is that you need done. Because if you can find a really tight fit there, I mean, you basically hire people who want to be thinking about the work when they wake up in the morning and when they go to bed at the night at night and they are obsessive about it. And then when you can find that, 
connection, you just get super high impact, high power people. And so like those two things are just table stakes for me. Now, then there's the, the craft. So like, in, you know, product management, do you know the fundamental product management skills? Do you know how to, you know, do, do you know how to leverage research? Do you know how to, you know, manage a backlog and write user stories or however it is that you're practicing product management. Uh, and then the last is the domain expertise. So do you know wearables? Do you know health and fitness, uh, et cetera? And, you know, those, those latter two categories, uh, the importance of those and how much seniority you need in those just depends on where you are in the life cycle of the company usually. So if you're talking about... It's almost like uh, you, you've ranked them in order. Right. So domain expertise may be down at the bottom uh, because if somebody has enough ambition and aptitude, they can pick that up. Yeah. Totally. And, and if you have a company where like, wow, we actually have tons of understanding of this domain, then um, someone who's smart can learn from all the other people there and figure that out. Um, if you're hiring in where, um, you know, you have great product management skill set there, but you need someone, let's say, you know, you're at Fitbit and you want to go into a new specific domain area. Um, and you've got someone in the organization who has that domain experience, but isn't great at product management, but you have great product management staff and you've got 20 product managers. Well, then you can actually train that person up on product management. So, you know, part is just looking at like the DNA of your team and where is, where are you lacking in, in that experience? Where do you need to build out your bench strength and where is your bench strength stronger? Yeah, 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 yeah. Did the hiring practice change over time, like from the beginning and, you know, through the years that you went, that you were there? Yeah, I mean, it evolved a lot. I mean, it was it was definitely more ad hoc and super lightweight in the beginning. I mean, there was just less stakeholders, less people. Um, I would say you were also hiring uh, generalists and a different style of person early on. And then when it got later, you know, you, you ended up having to have a, you know, the number of people that we were hiring, the rate that we were hiring at the, um, the process that we went through definitely evolved and became more explicit to the point where like, I mean, I have, I, I have a very, um, uh, thoughtful, explicit playbook of how I like to hire product managers and, uh, or designers and some, some real principles around that, that, you know, I think we learned over the years that are important of mm. things just like, and some of them, you know, and, and these are, these are not revolutionary ideas. I think most high performing organizations come to these conclusions, but there are things that just drive me nuts in the interview processes when they're done wrong. Like there's nothing worse than when you bring a candidate in and they, they meet with like six people and they basically have the same you know, superficial conversation with six people over and over again. So you go in, Oh, tell me about your resume. Walk yeah. me through your basic experience. They spend 30 minutes giving a general overview of what they've done over the last 10 years. And they do that over and over again. And you just think about how completely inefficient that is. Um, and how maddening that is for the candidate to have to sit there and tell their basic resume story over and over again. Like that should never happen. Like a, a candidate should come in and, and the way we would do it is that we'd have them come in and especially for product managers, cause you want some basic presentation skills. Yeah. We'd say, come in and, and you're going to present to the entire interview team at once yeah. and tell your, tell that story once to the entire team. And so then when uh, someone, you know, the director of engineering would sit down and interview the candidate, they, they already knew the background and they would just go then super deep. And they would be, we'd say to the director of engineering, go deep on experience working with engineers. And that's all they would talk about. Right. Yep. And you just get so much better information out of that. Well, and those superficial conversations you're left with, like the only way you make your decision is if they're a quote unquote cultural fit, which means, oh, I kind of got along with them. And like the things they said, like, you know, 
uh, resonated with me as opposed to really drilling into, is this person going to be successful for the set of tasks that we need them to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like, you don't want any, uh, almost any people on that interview group that you have being able to comprehensively say, we should hire this person or we shouldn't hire this person. You want the director of engineering to come back and say, I, I can't speak to large parts of this, but I can say from a, a technical perspective and working with engineering, I think this person's a really good fit mm. for the following reasons or not. But I have no idea how well they work with design, what their experience is, you know, in, in five different areas. And then your job as the hiring manager is to stitch together deep feedback from multiple people to create a whole picture. Um, and yeah. so, you know, our interview process just matured to be able to, 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 get to that over the years. Yeah. 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 I will put a link down in the show notes to a, a previous episode with Jared Spool, who would, who gave a great framework for figuring out how to like design, frankly, the, a hiring uh, process and interview techniques and things like that. It's very much a, like an intentionally designed thing. And I think that's, that's super helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, the, it's in the advising work that I've been doing recently, um, helping companies, um, explicitly design their interview process has probably been the mo most common thing that companies have asked for help with. There's so many dimensions to that, right? It's not just aptitude and skill, but there's also a diversity component that you're looking for in, in, in multiple vectors at once, not just sort of mm -hmm. cultural and ethnic, but age expertise, background, uh, even sort of like economic background and stuff like that, especially totally. when you're making a consumer product, you know, mm -hmm. like a product that is going to fit into the lives of frankly, anybody, um, I think that's huge. So, yeah. Yep, totally. Yeah, and, 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 and there's even a marketing component of, you know, one of the other mistakes that companies make all the time is, you know, you bring candidates in and they get grilled by the entire team and they get, you know, maybe they get rejected and the person walks out of there being like, wow, I hate that company. That was an awful experience. And, you know, getting everybody on the interview team to understand that doesn't matter. Every single candidate that comes in there and talks to the company should walk away being like, wow. I love that company. Maybe I didn't get a job offer, but man, I wish I did because that is an amazing company. Or maybe I turned down the offer, but wow, that's a really great company and really good people there. And I've got five friends who should go work yeah. there. And that mistake is just a classic mistake that gets make it, made over and over again of realizing that from every, every single conversation, you are not just validating a candidate. You're also selling a candidate. Oh my God. I saw that over and over at Google. It was just brutal. Yep. And, and it's, and it's a hard thing to do. It's like a hard, weird you know, bipolar thing to be qualifying a candidate and selling a candidate in the same conversation, but it's critical. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, as you grew, I bet, like you said, right, you were, you were hiring for more and more specific roles rather than generalists. Uh, but I bet different roles as well as the company matured, you know, things, uh, we have talked in the past, uh, uh, episodes about the role of program management in product management and UX and design and stuff like that. Uh, so, um, so I bet you went through that evolution as well. Oh yeah. I mean, in the beginning, like the idea, like, you know, project management was like a four letter word in, in the beginning of, of the company yeah. where it's just like, Oh, project management, that's overhead. And why would you have a dedicated project manager? And there's just an extra stakeholder and someone else in the mix and, and, but, you know, that changed radically and project management and program management became critical as we got bigger and bigger. And it was a, a fundamental element to scaling where, you know, you'd end up with these features that were these, you know, complicated features that, 
would require multiple teams to be able to execute them because, you know, it was a feature that was getting expressed on the device. It had to exist in the cloud. It had to exist on Android. It had to exist on iPhone. So there's no way that you could set up a team structure where teams could just pull off some of these features on their own. And so project, you know, program management, um, especially became really critical for taking these, these multi-team, uh, programs or projects and shepherding them and getting them done. So that, that certainly really changed. And then also specialization of things like in, in the beginning, you know, we hire very generalist designers yeah. who were, you know, I mean, in early days, our designers were doing everything from interaction design and visual design to packaging design to, you know, marketing material design. I mean, everything super generalist. And then, you know, that went on the full spectrum to then we got to the point where we were hiring specialized designers who did motion graphics. And that's pretty much the core thing that they did were for within app and in app experience motion graphics. And in the early days, if you told me that we were going to be hiring a designer that specialized in motion graphics, I don't think I would have believed <laughs> right. you. But we got to the point where like that, you know, the the that creating those experiences in the app were important to us. It was specialized enough a skill set that that was a thing we started hiring in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a whole new set of like uh, aptitude and craft to try to figure out how to manage, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that was a great benefit of that for, for product management and design is that as you're able to hire more and more specialized people, it creates a great culture and environment of peer learning. Right. Yeah. So if you're a designer on the team and you know, you maybe you're great at interaction design or maybe you're great at visual design, but you don't don't know much about motion graphics, well now you've got someone on your team who you can go to and say, Hey, I'd love to start to figure out how to do some of that myself. Can you teach me? And having a, and so, you know, you mentioned diversity earlier, I think thinking about diversity of your team in terms of the skills they have is super important as well, uh, because you've got a team where it's like, okay, you've got this person who's super deep on user research and this person who's great at prototyping and this person who's really good at, you know, interaction design and this person who's great at wireframe or at uh, visual design or whatever, that you create an environment where people could become, um, better and better at the craft of what they do and a broader and broader capable person. And I think that's great for retention. It's great for continuous learning. Mm, that's great. That's great. I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the product uh, features and, and things that, that felt very new in, um, in the Fitbit uh, and specifically around incentivizing people to, to take action. You mentioned that a little bit, you know, like go take mm-hmm. the stairs. Right. And I remember this concept yep. of the 10,000 steps. And I remember telling you years ago, like, Oh my God, I have like, I'm getting ready for bed. And I like, Oh crap, I have to go walk around the block. So I like, put my shoes back on and off I go. Right. To, Cause I got to get my 10,000 steps. But you guys also introduced the concept of like badges and, and things like that. People trying to collect and, and, and win and stuff. And I'm wondering like how, how that kind of played out over the years. Just collecting data and presenting data back to people for certain people can be super motivational, right? So if just collecting information on like how many steps you've taken and telling you how many steps you took and giving you a goal, there's a whole category of people for which that is super motivational. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what we tried to do over time was build layer upon layer of other motivational tools that leverage that data set. So whether that was badges, um, whether, and kind of gamification principles, whether it was social experiences of, you know, having a leaderboard and a friend graph um, and things like that, or just providing other really interesting, positive feedback loops. You know, like one of the features that 
um, you know, some of these features are just, they're, they're so obvious now because they've been in the marketplace and everybody's adopted them. But, you know, one of the things we did early on was made it so that your device buzzed when you hit 10,000 steps. Right. And I remember the, the designer who came up with that idea, they're like, hey, we've got a haptic motor and this vibrating motor on the thing. Why don't we just have the thing vibrate when you hit 10,000 steps? And we were like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Let's try that. And then and the delight that people got off of that, because especially in the beginning, it was such a surprise of like suddenly my out of nowhere, my, my device starts buzzing and I realize it's because I got my 10,000 steps. Uh, you know, it just became a, 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 one of those experiences in the product that, you know, just became almost part of the brand. Yep. Uh, you know, the badges, you know, our badge system we originally did because there were um, a lot of people at Foursquare who were Fitbit, early Fitbit users who oh, love yeah. Fitbit. And Foursquare reached out to us and said, hey, will you please do badges for Fitbit? Because if you do, we usually charge companies to actually do badges with us and, and be able to have badges within the Foursquare system. But we'll just do it for you guys for free because we like it so much. And so we said, all right, well, that's we, we talked about doing badges before. And so that kind of, you know, bumped things up the priority list a bit. And so we kind of you know, hacked together a quick badging system. And, you know, we looked at the distribution of step count across the user base. And so we kind of put in, you know, OK, well, if here's a badge at getting 10,000 steps a day and 15,000 and 20,000, we kind of said, all right, well, once you get up to like, you know, I think it was like 60,000 steps a day, that, that seems to be about enough looking at the data distribution. And then we launched it and there were users who just went nuts over it. And there was, you know, one story of a, um, a grandmother who went out and she was just trying to get as high a badge as she gets. So she got the 50,000 and the 55,000, the 60,000. And then she went out and did 65,000 steps and she got no badge because <laughs> we had made a 65,000 step badge. And she, she wrote in complaining that, you know, there was no 65,000 step badge. And, you know, and so we felt horrible. We also were worried about liability issues of like, was this badging system going to actually like start injuring people? And so it was amazing, you know, what, you know, what people would do for a hundred pixel by a hundred pixel graphical asset. That's right. I'm, I'm um, going to walk all day and I'm going to get my JPEG. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so it was amazing to see some of those things and the impact that it would have on people's behavior. And, you know, it, it was one of the things that made Fitbit such an amazing experience in that I, I always felt like if, you know, um, if at the end of the day, if we did our jobs, well, people would live longer and healthier lives. Right. And, and knowing that at kind of the core root of your work and what you were doing, uh, you know, versus working on, you know, you know, advertising systems or things like that, it felt really good. It's also, I mean, it gets to talking about uh, the ethical decisions that product teams face all the time. Increasingly, we, we're seeing this in the news day by day, mm -hmm. uh, how that has played out in, you know, other, uh, other companies and the decisions they've made. But like t taking a moment and saying, are we uh, incentivizing the right things here? Like, are we, are we, are we trying mm -hmm. to get people to do, in your case, it sounded like, you know, very much, but, but also pausing it to go like, if we make a 150,000 step badge, is that good for people? Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. And, and you know, and there were lots of interesting product decisions along the way of, um, you know, steps also became like this massive dominant currency. Mm. Right. So now like steps became this almost abstracted currency for activity and exercise. And so, you know, when we started implementing features like tracking a bicycle ride, so we, we implemented features that would automatically detect if you were on a bike based on the motion of you being on a bike. And then we could say, oh, you were on a bike for riding your bicycle for 30 minutes here. 
And so then it presented us with a challenge of, okay, if we've known you've been on the bike for 30 minutes, and if you're on a bike for 30 minutes, it can pick up some noise that look like steps. Should should you be getting step credit while you're on a bike? Mm. Or should we zero out any steps while you're on a bike because you're not walking? Mm. <laughs> and this became this really interesting philosophical debate within the company of, you know, people, I mean, people thought about activity as step credit. And you don't want to disincentivize someone for getting on a bike and say, you don't get any step credit when you're on your bike. So now you sh- I shouldn't bike anymore. But at the same time, giving someone uh, a step count while they're on their bike is just fundamentally theoretically flawed. Right. And so, you know, it became these really big philosophical debates of like, what, what do you do as steps become this Uber currency? And, you know, you look at other things like, you know, Nike, when they came out with the fuel ban and Nike fuel, who tried to create this, you know, this, this one stat to rule them all, right. which was this mysterious abstracted fuel stat, which, you know, no one knew exactly what it meant except for Nike. And they were going to, you know, give you fuel for any activity you did, which is, is one way to solve that problem because now you've got one metric for all activity. But the problem is, is like, no one knows what that means. Fuel is, I mean, steps are meaningful. Fuel is kind of meaningless. And so, yeah. you know, it creates some really interesting challenges in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I bet those were interesting conversations as you were going on. We uh, we are out of time. This is fantastic, Tim. I th- thanks so much for being on the show and for, for sharing all of this. And will you, uh, will you also please keep us up to date on what you do next? Yeah, absolutely. All Jeff, right. thank you so much. It's really good stuff. Thanks, Tim. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.